Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Friends, Elisa Childers here. Even if you haven't heard the terms critical theory or intersectionality, you have most likely encountered them in your everyday life. These are philosophical ideas that are influencing our culture at a rapidly growing rate, and they contradict Christianity. We're going to talk about these ideas with a special guest on today's podcast. My guest today is Neil Shenvey, a homeschool theoretical chemist. He attended Princeton and got his PhD from Berkeley in theoretical chemistry. Then he worked uh, as a postdoctorate associate at Yale, where he researched, and I'm going to try to say this word right, nonadiabatic dynamics. Was that even close? Neil, did I get it? Non-adiabatic dynamics. Okay. It's it's a tough word. It is a tough word. Okay. Well, also electron transfer and surface science. And eventually, he landed at Duke uh, to do some research there. And in 2015, he quit his job at Duke to homeschool his four children. Currently, he blogs at shenvyapologetics.wordpress.com. You can find him on Twitter at Neil Shenvy. And so, Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. I'm curious about you quitting your amazing job with all of your Ivy League education to homeschool your kids. What was it that prompted you to do that? And uh, what's it been like for you to be a homeschool dad of four? Yeah, that's a great question. So we'd never planned, my wife and I, we'd never planned to homeschool. Uh, I went to public school for K through 12, and I just kind of figured we'd send our kids to public school, maybe a private school. Uh, So we kind of fell into homeschooling almost accidentally. We went to church in New Haven, Connecticut, when my wife was in medical school at Yale, and we met several families there who homeschooled their kids, and we were very impressed with just how sociable and and mature these kids were, but we didn't think much about that. When we moved down to Durham for uh, her residency program, a friend of hers, of ours from grad school, mentioned that she was homeschooling her kids. And so we thought, huh, okay, well, that's an option, I guess. But what really happened in the end was that circumstances just aligned to make homeschooling attractive. My wife had just finished her residency training. Uh, She's now an ER doctor at UNC. We had our fourth child. This is about five years ago. And uh, and until that time, my mother-in-law was watching our three other kids. And we said, you know, this is going to be too hard to have her watch all four kids so that we can both work. And my oldest son was just starting kindergarten. And we said, you know what, we'll just give homeschooling a try. And we've just loved it. It's been great. So your credentials are really impressive. I glanced through all of your publications, and you have published on subjects like quantum computing, electron transfer, and some other things I can't pronounce. But <laughs> but that's not actually what we're going to talk about today. We're here to talk about something called critical theory like I mentioned before, which is more of a philosophical study. Right. But before we get into that, 
you, you've studied at these major Ivy League universities. I'm just kind of curious from a, an apologist's perspective, did anything that you learned or studied at those universities ever contradict what you believed as a Christian? I mean, just I, I can imagine as a Christian, you go to these universities to study science. Did you ever throughout the course of that time have doubts about your faith or what you believed as, as you, you got this education from these secular universities? So my experience is probably a little unusual because I became a Christian in graduate school. And so from the stories that I hear, yeah, Christians can sometimes be sheltered from secular thought or even from science when they're growing up in a Christian home. Then they go off to college and they're kind of blown away. They have their faith deeply challenged by what they hear. But my story is the opposite. So I grew up in a wonderful, loving home with great parents, but they were not Christians. And uh, so I was almost totally unexposed to Christian thought. So when I met intelligent Christians for the first time in college and graduate school, that actually deeply challenged me to re-examine my non-Christian beliefs. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, like all Christians, I, you know, I've had to wrestle with issues of creation and evolution, and, you know, naturalism, the idea that nature is all that exists, scientism, the idea that science is how we know truth. But generally speaking, you know, I'm approaching these issues from the opposite direction. I, I, I take it all of these ideas for granted as a non-Christian, and then had to let a biblical worldview challenge and reshape my my other, my other thoughts on these issues. So yeah, it's just, it's sort of backwards for me. Yeah, well, I guess you're right. I did assume that you had maybe been raised in a Christian home, and then you go off yeah. to the university and maintained your faith through that. But that is such an interesting story that it was actually through that process that you discovered Christianity. Was there a turning point for you? Just tell us a little bit about that story, uh, just so we can get an idea of what led you to faith. What, you know, was there kind of some significant moment uh, where you realized Christianity was true? Yeah. So I got to know my, you know, my future wife, Christina, in, uh, at Princeton as an undergraduate, and we went to grad school together. And I said, you know, I, so we were dating at the time, which is also always a dangerous thing to do. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of, there's a lot of tension in those relationships, mm. but, um, you know, God used, I was warned people, you know, as a caveat, you know, what we intended for evil, God intended for good for the saving of many lives, you know, Genesis. Uh, but, but, but what happened, I think was I said, well, I'll, I'll kind of compromise in this whole Jesus thing. I'll go to church with her. And that was a big mistake because uh, my church, our church in Berkeley, uh, our pastor had a PhD from Cambridge and my quantum physics professor sang in the choir. And so that forced me to realize that Christianity was not for intellectually dumb people. This, it, it, I thought to myself, really, the turning point was me realizing, my goodness, what if this is true, like objectively true? And that really led to a lot of realization that actually I didn't like Christianity. I'd been dismissing it as intellectually unsophisticated, mainly because I didn't like some of these ideas, like the idea that God is both is holy and just, and that hell is real, and that we have to trust in God's salvation through Jesus. I didn't like those ideas, but for the first time, I didn't just dismiss them because I didn't like them. I said, well, what if they're actually just true? And you know the funny thing is that I always say that uh, science done properly is a lot like theology done properly. You know, as, as scientists, we can have our pet theories and our our ideas about how the universe works, but at the end of the day, the universe just is the way it is, and we have to just accept that as scientists. In the same way, as Christians, we don't get to tell God the way He ought to be. He is who He is, and we have to just learn to love Him as He is, not as we want Him to be. So. That kind of was the, what really got the wheels in motion in terms of me realizing, man, if Christianity is true, then I have to just accept it. And and I began thinking about it. And so I, I came to through a lot of different ways, realized, yeah, this actually, this is plausible and this is true. Wow, very cool. So, yeah. so what led you as a, a scientist into studying critical theory? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um so a few years ago, even maybe three or four or five years ago, even I began noticing a drift in the theological views of some evangelical Christians, and these are conservative, the, theologically conservative evangelicals. But I began to notice that their theology started to drift towards a more liberal direction, and oftentimes, I mean, it would get more, it would snowball to the point where they might even stop professing as Christians at all. They'd become atheists, or they'd become very, very progressive theologically. And I saw it happen over and over again, both to people that I knew personally and to public figures. But I couldn't figure out why that was happening. And then I just 
providentially, I made a friend with a guy in my church um, named Pat Sawyer. He and I have written some articles on critical theory, but he was getting his PhD in cultural studies, and he's a professor at UNC Greensboro. Um, so he's now, you know, his PhD in cultural studies, and his dissertation was uh, dealt um, to a large extent with things like critical race theory, critical pedagogy. So for his PhD dissertation done in the secular world, he was steeped in learning about critical theory, but was still obviously a very conservative professing Christian. Mm-hmm. And so we got to know each other, and he began sort of telling me about what he was studying. And I said, you know, this is sending a lot like some of these disturbing trends that I've seen, I think, among evangelicals. And he said, no, there's no way that this is so, this is these radical progressive atheists that I'm interacting with in person in my classes. There's no way that a conservative Christian would be espousing these views. And we began meeting and talking. And yeah, he's now agreeing agreement with me. And I think we've really, he's really, he knows way more than I do about these subjects. But we've begun to see that these ideas are influencing not just our culture, but the church too. And that's why I'm concerned, because people are not merely adopting a few new beliefs about politics. They're adopting a new worldview that's gradually eroding their Christian worldview. And that's why they're they're adopting these new beliefs about theology. Hmm. So for people who are listening and they haven't ever really heard the term critical theory, they're not quite sure what it is, can you go ahead and just define what that is? Because I'm pretty sure when people hear the definition, they're going to recognize uh, that they've seen these ideas in social media, in blogs, and books, and, and even in some Christian materials. Uh, so just let us know, what is critical theory? So in like a one-sentence definition, critical theory is an ideology or, or a worldview, I'd even say, that sees the world uh, as uh, the, a fight between or a struggle between oppressed groups and their oppressors. And the aim of critical theory is to free groups from oppression. It's like a one-sentence definition. But if you unpack that, there are a lot of sort of basic tenets or premises of critical theory um, that underpin how they approach the topics of oppression and, and social justice and that inform their views on these issues. And uh, so if I can, I can go over those if you'd like to sure, sort of understand yeah. Yeah, what, what those are. So I, I, you know, I, I pick out sort of six main premises that are um, largely adopted by people either doing critical theory or absorbing the ideas of critical theory. So I'll just list them out. I want to actually give a few quotes um, just to show that I'm not making these up. I have a whole – I just created a document. It's like five pages, six pages long on my website that has a ton of these quotes from primary sources. You know, one of the things I love about your work, Elisa, is that you really focus on primary sources, you know, not relying on what so-and-so says about so-and-so, but reading them for themselves, letting them have a voice. So mm-hmm. uh, let me just so say these premises, and then I'll, I'll give you some quotes to encapsulate these ideas. Um, So premise one, uh, individual identity, who we are as individuals, is inseparable from our group identity as either oppressed or oppressor. So along some given axis of identity, like race, class, gender, sexual orientation, uh, gender identity, we we are either part of an oppressor group or an oppressed group, and you can't understand yourself, your identity, apart from that distinction. So here's a quote from uh, Peggy McIntosh. She was a, a, a writer who popularized the phrase white privilege. And here's a quote from uh, one of her papers. She says, my schooling gave me no training in seeing myself as an oppressor. So in other words, she was an oppressor, but she didn't know it. I was taught wrongly to see myself as an individual whose moral state depended on her individual moral will. So she's rejecting that idea that she's, she's individually innocent because she's part of an oppressor group, in this case, white, white people. Mm. Um, here's Robin DiAngelo, who uh, wrote a book, White Fragility, which is very popular. Uh, she says, individualism holds that we are each unique and stand apart from others, even those within our social groups. Setting aside your sense of uniqueness is a critical skill that will allow you to see the big picture of the society in which we live. Individualism will not. So we see this emphasis on groups as very central to critical theory. And I think a good example of this would be um, a few weeks ago, I, I went to Twitter and I entered the phrase uh, old white male in the Twitter search box. I, I wouldn't do that if I were you, but if, you, if you're curious, uh, because I found the, I think the best example of this was an exchange between Cher, you know, the singer Cher and Rosie O'Donnell from The View. 
So Cher had this uh, tweet that said, you know, Biden Beto 2020. So she was saying, oh, it'd be great if Joe Biden and Beto O'Rourke ran for president in 2020. And Rosie O'Donnell says, no way, no way. So Cher says, what's the problem with Joe Biden? And Rosie O'Donnell responds, no more old white men. Mm. This is it's about Joe Biden now. So it's not about who he is as a person, as an individual that matters. He's part of the wrong identity group. And that's enough to say he can't be president. Um, yeah, so that's okay. That's one example. And you, you know, when you, well, you hear these premises, I hope you'll see immediately, oh, yeah, I've heard this stuff. Yeah. So premise two, um, oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through the exercise of hegemonic power. What's hegemonic power? What is that? That is the ability of a group to impose their values their norms and their expectations on other people, on society. So it's not about numbers. When you talk about dominant groups, they may not actually be the majority. So for example, only about 15% of Americans are old and white and male. They're a minority group, mm. but they exercise hegemonic power over culture. And that's what is oppression. Oppression is not cruel treatment or cruel and unjust treatment or control. That's a dictionary's definition of oppression. But critical theorists define oppression in terms of imposing your norms, what is normal on society. Um, so here's a, here a, here's a quote from Margaret Anderson, writing in Race, Class, and Gender. Uh, and so you can hear how she's going to group all these different uh, ideas in, under one category of oppression. So racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism, transphobia, those are all examples of oppression. Now, here's an example. Like racism, sexism is a belief a system of beliefs or behaviors by which a group is oppressed, controlled, and exploited because of presumed gender difference. Homophobia, the fear of homosexuality, is part of the system of social control that legitimates and enforces gender oppression. It supports the system of compulsory heterosexuality. Now think about that. Do you think we actually compel people to be heterosexuals like with physical force? Well, no, but she's talking about norms. We expect people, you know, men and women are going to get married and have kids. That is actually oppressive to a critical theorist. Um, and if you go, I have plenty more quotes, but you can see that when they talk about racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism, uh, they will describe these ideologies, these, 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 um, these things, using exactly the same language because they're all forms of oppression. So again, that's why, yeah, so they, they don't see them as, as really qualitatively different at all. Uh, okay, so number three, our fundamental moral duty is freeing groups from oppression. That's what we're sort of supposed to be doing as human beings. Um, here's, uh, here's Mary McClintock. She writes, prior to celebrating diversity, which is a good thing, we must first eliminate intolerance. No matter what form it takes or who does it, we must all take action to stop intolerance when it happens. Working towards a celebration of diversity implies working for social justice, which she defines as the elimination of all forms of social oppression. Now, here's how she thinks about injustice. Social injustice takes many forms. It can be injustice based on a person's gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, physical or mental ability, or economic class. So you can see all these are tied together. When, they, people, when critical theorists talk about social justice, they're talking about liberating people from norms and expectations of a dominant culture. That's what social justice means to critical theorists. Yeah, so it, that's a big issue because I think social justice can be a term that Christians want to sign up for. Yeah, we care about justice. We're, I mean, the Bible's full of calls to free people who are oppressed and to work for justice. But you have to understand that when critical theorists use these terms, they don't mean what you might think they mean. Justice does not mean um, giving people what they deserve. It means liberating groups from hegemonic power, mm. these expectations that society places on them. So it's kind of like this, this imported definition, because of course, like you said, the Bible is filled with verses and passages and themes of justice and how God defines justice. Uh, but I think that's a real key thing to remember uh, as, as people are trying to untie these knots and kind of figure out what's right about all this stuff and what's wrong about it is that it really matters how we define these words. And as Christians, we want to define these words in a biblical way. And I, I think it was so interesting what you just said, and then we'll get to the the last points there, but I just wanted to pop in and kind of make this, yeah, yeah. this observation here that the wording of it was something about 
we are about tolerance. It, it's tolerant mm-hmm. of all groups, all. But I would imagine that the woman who wrote that wouldn't be very tolerant of your views about her definitions of justice is, you know, possibly. Right, because they're oppressive, right? They yeah. impose a norm on other people. I mean, and we'll get to this in a second, but you think about it. Christianity or the Bible is just one gigantic hegemonic discourse from start to finish, right? right? The Bible is a set of norms and values that is binding on all people, all races, classes, genders, etc. So critical theorists would see that as incredibly oppressive and would view God as sort of the ultimate oppressor. Yeah. Because he has expectations of us that are binding and and you know we can't just say, well, we want to liberate people from this hegemonic power. God says, no, you know, that this is this is the way reality works, and you have to simply submit to it. Right, which prompts many progressive Christians to reinterpret the Bible through that lens to where they'll even say, you know, these prophets that were supposedly speaking for God in the Old Testament, that they weren't really speaking for God because God couldn't really be that way. So they were just explaining their best understanding of God at their location in history and their group that they had been affiliated with. And they were just doing their best to express what they believed about God, but they weren't really speaking for God, which of course completely undermines things like biblical inspiration, divine inspiration, and the inerrancy and infallibility of of the Bible. So, you know, in the work that I do, I really see these ideas take deep root in the thinking of many progressive Christians as well. Right. I was very excited to hear your uh, your interviews and talks on progressive Christianity, because I think there's a lot of overlap here. Let me read you. And what's happening is, it's funny because they say, well, these prophets weren't really speaking for God, but that actually would undermine then the authority of the prophets' calls for justice and, the, and the, un, you know, to, to work against oppression. Great point. Well, they say, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll keep those, though. But here's the question. What's happening is, they're adopting critical theory as a worldview and letting that then determine what they keep and what they throw away from the Bible. Exactly. Right? So the critical theory is sitting, and this is, I'm going to pull out this quote. This is a phenomenal quote. It really encapsulates what, what we're talking about. Um, when uh, John MacArthur and others released that statement on social justice in the gospel, um, there was a lot of reactions to it. And, and one of them came from Union Theological Seminary. Um, and they had a response to that statement. And here's what they said in response to that statement. Uh, Their very first claim in this Twitter thread was, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible because it reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. Exactly what you're saying, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, here's the question, though. How do they figure out what is in the Bible is God's truth and what is human sin and prejudice? They go on, they continue. They explain biblical scholarship and critical theory help us to discern which messages are God's. Mm. So they're very explicit. I mean, that's very clear. I really commend them for being clear here. Mm-hmm. They're saying, we're going to sift through the Bible and determine what is God's authoritative inspired word to us and what is sin by using critical theory. So critical theory is a worldview that is going to set above the Bible to determine what in the Bible we keep and what we throw away. Right. So that's, it's a very interesting dynamic. And I think that's part of the reason, one of the many reasons I see a big conflict between critical theory and Christianity. So let me go on to uh, sort of number four. I'll go faster through these, but uh, so premise four is the idea that lived experience is more important than objective evidence in understanding oppression. Um, Here's one example. Um, uh, Anderson and, and Collins write, the idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking, one that we will challenge throughout this book. So they have a whole, this 500-page anthology, and it's full of stories and narratives and personal testimony rather than sort of data and facts and argument and reason because, again, they're challenging that. They're saying, you know, lived experience is more important than quote-unquote objective facts in determining and understanding oppression. You can't really understand these issues if you are part of a dominant group. And you're expected, if you're part of a dominant or oppressor group, to just sit and listen and learn and never to object to the claims made by an oppressed person. That Your job is simply to, to, to say amen and agree with them and not to challenge them. Um, and then, now, now, why would that be? Well, the premise five is, well, the reason you have to trust oppressed groups when they make claims is because Premise five, oppressor groups hide their oppression under the guise or pretense of objectivity. 
So the idea here is that you, know, you claim to have reasons for oppressing us, and again, oppressing means imposing your values and norms on us, but that's just an excuse. You're really trying to get, our, get power, and you're using rationality and evidence and argument as a way to cloak your will to dominate. So here's a quote from uh, Richard Delgado. He writes, ideology, the received wisdom, makes current social arrangements seem fair and natural. Those in power sleep well at night. Their conduct does not seem to them like oppression. So again, they're concealing their real desire to oppress beneath the guise of these arguments, these reasons. Uh, and I can go on. There are many quotes here. Um, but obviously, you can see if you really believed that people making truth claims were really trying to smuggle in these bids for power, you can see why you doubt those claims. You say, well, I don't really trust these claims. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to follow your quote-unquote reasoning because you're really just trying to control me. Uh, and then, yeah, finally... Um, and this is actually, I think, less controversial than it, than it needs to be. Um, the idea of intersectionality, this is the idea that people who are at the intersection of different oppressed groups experience oppression in a unique way. So a woman who's, a woman who's black experiences oppression that is unique to black women. She's not just reducible to she's black, plus she's a woman, therefore we understand her experience. There are experiences that are unique to, say, black women or disabled white women or um, transgender, uh, Native Americans, like these groups are more than just some of their parts. And again, I don't think that narrow claim is really that debatable. It's like, sure, I understand why, say, a black woman on welfare experiences life differently than, say, a white woman who's not on welfare. They're, not, they're, they're both women, but there's a difference between their social location. But intersectionality taken broadly makes more extravagant claims like, well, because she experiences oppression in a unique way, therefore you can't possibly understand what she's going through. Therefore, you have to accept every one of her claims. That's the controversial part there. And it goes right. back to, again, the premises four and five. Right. So that's a summary of critical theory, the yeah. basic tenets of critical theory. Yeah. Well, that is really helpful. And I'm sure as people are listening, they're already identifying where they've seen some of these ideas pop up on the internet and on social media and things like that. Uh, but, but, you know, there's, it can be confusing because there's a bit of a mixed bag in there. Like we talked about before, the Bible talks a lot about justice. Shouldn't we as Christians want to fight for justice in our world? And so there, there's all these questions swirling around this type of thought. So how do you see the ideas of critical theory? Uh, how do they contradict Christianity? Like how would you contrast the two worldviews in a broad way? Your friend even was saying, you know, conservative Christians would never say these things. But then, right. you know, Christians hear, well, yeah, I want to promote justice. So how do we make sense of all that? How, did, how does this contradict Christianity? We will be right back with Neil's answer to my question. But first, I want to tell you about a ministry I work with called Impact 360. And more specifically, their summer experience for high schoolers called Impact 360 Propel. It's a one-week leadership and discipleship experience in beautiful Pine Mountain, Georgia. Through TED-style sessions, uh, experiential leadership training, and intentional time to develop community, students are empowered to influence their peers out of their identity that's rooted in Christ. It's an amazing week. If you want to register your high schooler, you can go to impact360institute.org propel and use my name as a promo code, that's ALISA, all caps, A-L-I-S-A, for $25 off your tuition. I'll be there this summer speaking and doing some singing. I really hope to meet your high schooler this summer at Propel. Yeah, well, before I get there, I think I'd start with saying, well, they have some good points. We should, we should give, you know, give them some credit for making some you know, good observations. I think we should try to, try to find the best in critical theory. So, for example, um, the idea of hegemonic power. I think a great example that would resonate with conservatives are things like um, standards of beauty and sexuality. You know, as Christian parents, we have to work really hard to teach our children that women are not just sex objects and they're not reducible to what you see in a, on, on the movie, in the movies, you know, in advertising that women are, um, are people, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, not objects. And, and the fact that we have to work so hard shows that hegemonic power exists with respect to beauty. So that idea is not a completely crazy one. It, it's real. Uh, and things like systemic oppression, systemic racism, uh, these things exist. For example, 
uh, like the Holocaust or chattel slavery or apartheid, we had not just individual acts of uh, immorality. Well, sure, we did. But it's better to understand the Holocaust through the lens of men. Well, there were laws that were written that, that shaped human intuition. The reason that people began to hate the Jews even more was because we created a whole system of laws that taught us to hate them. So I think that we should recognize that laws can and do almost necessarily shape our moral intuitions. And therefore, if we want to work to change uh, injustice and immorality, it's not, it's not enough to simply change the laws. We have to change hearts too, but it doesn't hurt to change the laws. I think Martin Luther King said, the law won't stop you from hating me, but it might stop you from lynching me. Mm. So I think as Christians, we say, well, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Again, I'd take abortion. I mean, pro-life Christians don't simply try to change hearts. We definitely do. And we'd say, yeah, that's actually almost more important than changing just the laws. But at the same time, we would never say, well, why bother with laws? Well, no, the laws inform how people think. I mean, think about how many times you've been told, well, if abortion were immoral, why is it legal? Well, because the law is not always moral. That's that's the issue. Right. So we have to give credit to critical theorists for, for focusing on the legitimate elements of truth. Um, but in terms of contradictions, I think they are manifold. Um, I've already talked about how critical theory is a worldview. I mean, it answers these deep questions about uh, who we are, who, your identity, who are you? Uh, critical theory doesn't define your identity in terms of who you are as God's creature, I'm primarily a creature of a holy, good, and just God who has a will that I should you know, submit to, who loves me, and who makes me valuable. Instead, critical theory says that we define ourselves in terms of things like race, class, gender, sexuality, and, and other groups where we fit into society. Uh, and then our primary moral duty on Christianity is loving God with our whole heart and then loving our neighbor as ourselves but for critical theory, our primary moral duty is liberating oppressed groups. And I mean, you can, and that, that is really our primary, maybe our only moral duty. And that's why you have groups like, this is an extreme example, but um, a group like Antifa will, will use violence, uh, not only against people that are being violent to them, but against people that are just, say, wearing a Trump hat, right? Because, because why? Because liberating groups from oppression, you know, takes precedence over other things like don't be violent. Mm -hmm. um, a few years ago, a guy, um, an Antifa member, hit a Trump supporter in, in the head with a bike lock, and not because there was like a, not because he was doing anything violent. The, the guy was just just talking, but because the guy was a Trump supporter. And uh, the funny thing was, the guy who committed the assault taught ethics at a local university, mm. and so you can see how, you know, principles, abstract goals like resisting oppression are more important than moral norms like, well, don't hit people with bike locks. Well, yeah, yeah but it, it's not as important as, well, but I was, I was resisting oppression. Right. So, um, but what, are, what are, I think besides the whole worldview issue, I think the big one is actually uh, epistemology or how we know the truth. Um, and that one I see in the church as the, probably the most dangerous aspect of critical theory that's out there, the, the, the most uh, dangerous implication. Um, so remember, critical theory teaches that Oppressor groups hide their oppression underneath the guise of objectivity. They, they claim to have reason, they claim to have arguments, but really they're just uh, interested in power. Well, that's, and so you can dismiss their, their so-called arguments. You can ignore them because they're just really trying to get power and privilege. Mm. That's, you know, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, I'm sure you are, yeah. but he coined that fallacy, bulverism, right? Bulverism is when you assume the person's wrong based on their motivations or their, their, their hidden agendas but you don't actually look at the claim itself. Well, critical theory is full of that reasoning. Uh, and well, here's an example you'll see in, in practice. You know, imagine that as a man, if I make a, a pro-life argument, so I argue that abortion is morally wrong, and I give an argument with three premises and a conclusion, so I, you know, I make the argument. Mm -hmm. The response I'm likely to get as a man is, oh, of course, you, know, you would say that. You're trying to control women's bodies. Mm -hmm. Right. But right. The, here's the funny thing. What if a woman like my wife makes the same argument with the same premises, the same conclusion? Well, then she's accused of having internalized oppression. Yeah. This happened to me on Twitter. Oh, of course. So this is crazy. I, and, it, and I didn't at the time, this was a couple years ago, I hadn't really 
become all that knowledgeable yet about critical theory and intersectionality and some of this right. stuff. So it could not figure out what was happening. Right, but yeah. I had commented on an article uh, that uh, was, I, you know, it was a bit controversial. It was sort of criticizing the strong female character that we see in movies so much. And I've had a deep concern about this for a while because as I have a daughter growing up in this world, I don't really want her to think that a grown man and a grown woman having a one-on-one fist fight is a fair <laughs> fight, you know, which is how it's yeah. portrayed. And so, so I was agreeing with the article that was sort of criticizing this type of character. And, uh, and again, just for anyone listening, I'm not saying I, I think it's great that women are shown to be smart and strong and, and all of those things in the movies. But I think that when they're portrayed as like it's equal combat, I, I think that's dangerous, especially for right. girls growing up thinking that's the norm. So, so anyway, I, I commented on Twitter and for, I'm not kidding, Neil, for three days, <laughs> I was just <laughs> battered with hundreds and hundreds of, com- I don't know how people found it, but somehow I became the target for three days. And these two guys guys actually came on and we're having a whole conversation about uh, what to call women like me. And so the term they came up with was willfully oppressed. Yeah. Just because I, I felt that it was not a great role model to have a woman who's 110 pounds fist fighting a 250 pound guy and it being portrayed as a fair fight. Isn't that interesting? Right. Yeah, but So yeah, I, we'll get to this a little later, I think, but you know, that phrase "internalized oppression" played a huge role in uh, some of these books I read because, well, you have, so if you're a critical theorist and someone challenges your claim, they say, "Well, I don't understand why you think that, say, uh, women are oppressed." Yeah, I kind of dispute that claim. Well, so if you challenge the claim of a critical theorist, if you're a man, the response is easy. Oh, well, you're of course you'd say that, right? right. But what do you do with the other half of the population who challenges your claims? They have to have some recourse, and the answer is internalized oppression. Yeah. So that, but that reasoning, it cuts them off completely from any, any need to defend their position. They can write off people who disagree with them, whether or not they're oppressor or oppressed. That's pretty much everybody. Uh, And so, but here's the problem. I'm seeing that happen now with regard to the Bible. Yeah. So if you say, well, okay, look, I I understand that you think this is, this is the truth here, but here's what the Bible says on this issue now, here's the problem. A critical theorist, or someone who's been influenced by critical theory, does not have to actually engage your actual argument. They can simply say, oh, of course, you would say that because you're trying to promote your own power and privilege. But if I am part of an oppressed group and say the, the same claim, well, the Bible says this, they'll say, well, you have internalized oppression. So, so I mean, if you look at, uh, look at um, claims like, well, I think the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin— if you are heterosexual, they'll say, well, of, of course you do. Of course you do. You're trying to pr- 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 preserve your control and power within the church. But if, let's say you experience same-sex attraction, right? You experience it yourself. And you say, I just think the Bible does teach that homosexuality is a sin. Well, they can say, oh, you're full of self-hatred, yeah. self-loathing. You know, you're internalized the heteronormativity. And I see this all across yeah, the boards that too. people have— yeah, right. And so you know, when I say these things, I, mean, I gave these talks at numerous um, different places. And one thing a professor at NC State said when I gave this talk on critical theory and social justice, um, he said, well, you know, now that I know about critical theories, like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. Right? It just it's everywhere. And again, you don't have a name for it. But I'm hoping to have help people to put a name to what these, these trends are in our culture. Um, so yeah, that's the big, for me, that's the biggest problem because what happens is you get Christians who have effectively uh, isolated themselves or, or sealed themselves off from any critique, even the critique of scripture, because they're going to say, I'm going to believe what I believe. And if you challenge me, it's not, I don't have to look at your arguments. I have to simply I can just simply appeal to your, your presumed motives. Um, that's a really, that's a really bad place to be in. Yeah. Well, and it, I, I saw this play out as well uh, recently when I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition on similarities in belief between progressive Christians and atheists. And it was such mm-hmm. a great learning experience for me to see the response. It sort of got a lot of attention in the progressive Christian world. And so I oh, got good. to see a lot of the uh, opposition to it and what they were saying. And what was so interesting to me is, first of all, you know, if you read the article, there's nothing political about it. There's no mention of any type of political ideas at all. Um, right. there, I used a C.S. Lewis quote, 
And uh, so just that'll give you a little foundation. So the criticism I received, number one, uh, was my affiliation with Gospel Coalition. So just the fact that I had written an article that was published by the Gospel Coalition, uh, I received tons of criticism just for that. So it didn't even matter what it said. It didn't matter what my opinion was or what the article actually stated and claimed. The fact that the Gospel Coalition published it it was like on the naughty list automatically yeah. mm-hmm. without any critical thinking at all. So that was number one that I observed. And then the, the second thing was that I saw so many people uh, connecting my blog post with something to do with Trump, which I thought was so uh, funny mm-hmm. because there's there's absolutely nothing in the article that would even lead someone there. But I think because of the group that I'm perceived to be in, um, at, you know, as an evangelical and and this narrative that all evangelicals support Trump, which is not true, right. um, you know, it was affiliated with that. And then the fact that I used a C.S. Lewis quote because they claimed him for their group. So because <laughs> I used his quote, I'm a hypocrite because maybe I don't agree with C.S. Lewis on all the finer theological points. And then the fact that I quoted white authors. Yeah. And, and I just thought, man, this was like a crash course in critical theory, just reading some of this criticism. So it's, you know, I definitely see these ideas coming into the church. What have you observed as, you know, when you're looking at uh, what's materials are being produced by the church, how are you seeing these ideas influencing Christians? Right. So um, like I said, the big one is that people, if you're part of an oppressed group, again, as defined by critical theory, then your claims have to go unchallenged. It is not so. If I, if, if a person, let's say a woman makes a claim about anything, you know, scripturally, um, then I have to be. I really can't stand and stand, stand up and say, no, I think you're wrong because of the Bible, and even try to arguments, or at least I'll be. I'll, I should be. I should be very hesitant to do that because, again, I'm an oppressor. Um, so that's one area in which it happens all the time. People are really just. I think conservative Christians who ought to be the most emphatic that, yeah, you know, my opinions, your opinions, all of our opinions need to be tested against scripture, regardless of whether we're white or black or purple or anything. But I think we're getting more and more wary of even saying, hey, I really want us to have this conversation on the basis of scripture. Um, That's, again, almost frowned upon. that's one thing. I may just point out. So, I mean, there are there's so many. I mean, you can go to you probably you see my talk on this that I gave mm-hmm. to you at Defend. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a lot of other implications about how this how the how the implications of critical theory impact our theology. So I think you did a great job in your talks about um, the progressive Christianity and saying, look, there's correlations between what progressive Christians believe and what atheists believe. You know, there's similarities, but there's no path from one to the other necessarily, right? And I, yeah, so I totally be careful not to confuse correlation and causation. Right. But what I think I want to offer a, a, in this, and what I'm saying is that I think there is a trajectory from these ideas into other ideas that are incompatible with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like we said, like you know, if you reject hegemonic narrative norms, you reject norms and discourses and one way of seeing things and one set of values. Well, you got to reject the Bible. You just you just have to. Like if you say, well, it's, it's oppressive to say that there's one right way of thinking about things. Well, the Bible is just one right way of thinking about reality. Um, so that's one example of how the ideas of critical theory just logically lead to, if you're consistent, they will erode your Christian beliefs. But in terms of actual practice, I mean, this is a very sensitive subject, um, but I want to, let me quote some, some concern or people that were either, that either are cons- confessing evangelicals, professing evangelicals, uh, or, or at least were in the very recent past. Mm-hmm. I want to just quote some from you. I won't list their names or identify them, but I want to quote some statements that they've made. Um, and you, I think after we've, since we've talked about critical theory and what it is, I think you'll immediately recognize critical theory in these statements. So here's, um, here's a quote taken from a document called Whiteness 101. Uh, this is a document written by a Christian racial reconciliation group that was featured, it's a big group, was featured in Christianity Today. So it's a major national group, and it provides tips for whites, not for blacks or Hispanics or Asians, but only for whites who are involved in racial reconciliation. And it's, here's the rule, one of the many, many rules it gives to white people. Uh, it says whites are told that people of color should be given, given space to wail, cuss, or yell, not at injustice in general, but at you, at the white person. 
So now why would you say that people of color can yell at white people, but obviously not vice versa? Well, it's because people of color are oppressed, but not because, I mean, you could be talking about a person of color who's rich and highly educated and a white person who's poor and uneducated, but they're still oppressed or oppressed because of the difference in the group structure, the power dynamics. So that's why you see this total asymmetry. Now, obviously, the Bible doesn't view, first of all, Christians shouldn't interact that way, cussing at other Christians, period. Right, <laughs> right? Right. But certainly not because, well, your, cla- your group has power over my group in some kind of, you know, vague way, or even not vague way, but just, but it doesn't, Bible doesn't think in terms of power dynamics. It thinks primarily in terms of right and wrong that apply to both groups equally. Um, here's a here's a statement by an author. So this author, um, her work is still featured on the ERLC website. ERLC is the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Committee. Her work is on that website, and she was calling herself an evangelical, you know, as late as 2017. I'm not sure if she still does. Um, so she created a website and has a recommended reading list for children. This is a children's reading list. And on the preface, she lists male privilege, abled privilege, cis hetero privilege, citizenship status privilege, and so on, as privileges granted by societal systems of oppression and supremacy. Now, what books does she recommend? Uh, one of them is called A is for Activist, which is an alphabet book for children of three to eight. And it includes statements like LGBTQ, love who you choose, and T is for trans, trust in the true, the he, she, they, that is you. Hmm. Uh, and so then there are a couple other books on this reading list that are, you know, anti-homophobia, pro-LGBT, LGBT-affirming, you should probably say. Uh, now, why would and the, but why and those are included alongside books about slavery and the civil rights movement. Well, well, why? Well, because she accepts the idea that sexism, racism, ableism, heteronormativity, and cisgender privilege are all forms of oppression. So that's completely barred from critical theory. Um, I'll just give one more here. Um, here's a uh, hey, I'll get okay. Here's um, a, a so a few. I think a month or two ago, um, Pastor Tim Keller uh, wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times in which he argued that neither political party, neither political party is in perfect alignment with Christian values. So I, I think I agree that politicians on both sides are not right. in perfect line. So yeah, of course, I agree with that. Well, here's a response to that article from an evangelical, a very popular evangelical author who has 16,000 followers on Twitter. So this is what the author writes. Tim Keller has no authority, all caps, to teach on justice. None. Now, now why would the author say that? Uh, Keller is, in the author's words, a rich white man whose ministry targets rich people. That's all caps again. The only, the author goes on, the only ones with divine authority to define the bounds of oppression are the oppressed themselves. Oppressed and colonized people wrote every single word of the Bible. The only person in all of scripture who came close to the social location of Tim Keller was Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Keller has no authority to speak or teach on justice. Now you think about that statement. Is that true? I mean, what gives someone the authority to speak about justice? Is there is the Bible and their call to teach the Bible as a pastor, is that enough authority or not? I mean, how can you read that and not just say immediately, yeah. wait a minute, you don't get authority from your skin color or your gender, you get authority from preaching faithfully scripture, the whole counsel of God. And that's just, I mean, I could go on and on listing these statements. Maybe these are all from, I think all three that I gave you were from evangelicals, yeah. even maybe conservative evangelicals. I mean, I have quotes from uh, seminary professors at evangelical universities, uh, seminary students from conservative yeah. evangelical. And so it's, it is widespread. And I think we have to recognize that this is where it's coming from. And we have to be able to say, yeah, yeah it's not good. Well, that's, that's very scary stuff. That's very disturbing stuff. And as we talk, I keep thinking about the first century Roman empire. I've been reading about what life was like for that group of people. And according to modern standards, 90% of the first century Roman empire were oppressed. And this is the group Jesus came right. to. This is the group that the New Testament was written among. And the message that we see coming from Christianity, from the word of God, 
Uh, I'll just read from Galatians. It's Galatians 3.28, where Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so right there, you have Jew nor Greek, that's an ethnic category, slave or free, that's a socioeconomic category, male and female, that's gender categories. So all of those are, are seen as we are one in Christ Jesus. And that's such an important message because that is really, in my opinion, the key to where Christianity contradicts the whole idea of intersectionality and critical theory. So as we close out here, I want to ask you, because this was a really, I thought, a really important part of your talk when I listened to it. It, it, it was something that really hit home for me. When you talked about what we as Christians um, should do or should not do, uh, as we learn about <laughs> critical theory, as we endeavor to maintain a biblical worldview, you know, obviously our tendency sometimes can be to recognize an idea and then swing the pendulum crazy in the opposite direction and then just be the swinging pendulum. How do we find balance here? How do we find a biblical way to live as we learn about these things and recognize them in culture? Right. I think the biggest concern that I have, well, I mean, uh, after my concern about critical theory, I think it's undeniably dangerous and destructive. And I think we do, like you said, the big question for me is, is a friend for us is, Will Scripture be our ultimate authority? Or are we going to submit all these ideas to Scripture and then really interrogate them and say, is this what Scripture teaches or not? Um, and, then, and then simply reject what's not biblical. Uh, but I th- So I think to people that lean liberal or progressive, I would say, you know, really, I would urge people like that to say, you have to go back and test these ideas that you're, that seem so commonsensical to you. Like, you know, we should, we should elevate oppressed people and we should never question their experiences you have to go back and ask yourself, well, where's this going to lead me? So that, that's one thing. I, clearly, that's that's a point I made to the whole interview mm-hmm. so far. But for conservatives, I, I think there's another message that really needs to be heard. And that is uh, that I think the real wedge issue right now in the evangelical church is race. I think evangelicals are rightly, um, rightly ashamed of America's history and racism. Yeah. I, I, and I think I've done a lot of reading, uh, just popular books on race and racism in the U.S. Uh, Ibram Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning, um, Erasing the Stain from the SBC. It's a book put out by the SBC on racism in the SBC. I, I like all these books. And even if there are points at which I think I just disagree historically, not not many, but but some points where I disagree historically or in, in terms of interpretation, um, we have to know that history is real. It, it really is yeah. there. And it's horrifying. It really is horrifying. And so we, one should not be afraid to think about it and to acknowledge it. And then two, this is the the harder part to realize that we do not live in a colorblind nation. And here, you know, I don't pull out, um, sort of theory and, and, you know, identity formation. I don't appeal to, uh, to these hypothetical, ideas. I, you know, I'm a scientist, so I appeal to data. And there is so much data out there uh, drawing on experiments with careful controls showing how uh, blacks experience discrimination today in the U.S. So some ex- just one example is a big one. There is a study of uh, hiring discrimination. It is a meta-study, so it examined basically two dozen different studies, carefully controlled studies of hiring uh, of blacks versus whites in the job market. And it and this is by uh, Dr. Deva Pager, if you want to look it up. It's a meta-analysis. And this is, it's a study of these studies, and they were carefully controlled. They did things like they'd send out resumes that were identical, and they simply had – the only thing they changed was like the name. One name said you know, Lakeisha or Jamal. The other resume said Emily or Greg. So the names indicated a white person or a black person, but the resumes were identical. And in all of these studies, on average, whites were hired at about 40% – higher rate than blacks, given identical resumes. And that, that number hasn't changed, according to the study, in about 30 wow. years. So in ni- from 1990 to today, that 40% advantage that whites have over blacks in a hiring with identical resumes, since they're not just disparities, uh, hasn't changed. And so I think when you hear blacks, and, and you look at surveys about racism, about um, uh, ra- interracial marriage acceptance, I mean, I'm half Indian. I was shocked to find that um, a survey, a recent survey, has found that 28% of Republicans 
uh, believe that interracial marriage between blacks and whites is immoral. And that's today. Immoral. Today. Today. That was 2018, I think. And it's not, it's not one survey. That's consistently the numbers around 12 to 15% by both parties. You know. But in to, to today. And so when people talk about the harm, the racism, the existence of racism in our society, and we have to listen. We have to be willing to sympathize. And to, when we see racism, to fight yeah. it be committed to things like actual injustice. Uh, really, I think the message of conservatives is if you want people to uh, engage in dialogue and not to write you off and to listen to you, then do the same to them, right? Mm-hmm. They're your brothers in Christ. Listen to them, talk to them, work with an open Bible and say, how can we work together as brothers and sisters in Christ to fix these problems? Well, how have, I, have I done anything wrong? Can I examine myself and say, how have I fallen short of God's standards? So that's number one. Um, Number two is I don't use the word Marxism. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think people uh, and there, you know, there are connections between critical theory uh, historically and and classical Marxism. Um, some schools of critical theory are known as neo Marxism. You'll hear the phrase cultural Marxism used somewhat today. I don't use those terms because they tend to be conversation stoppers. Um, People get accused of being Marxist for just about anything today. You know, you say, "I can you hey, you want to split a cab? Hey, are you a Marxist?" Like, no. <laughs> yeah. So I, and I see that it really, for me, who's trying to, I mean, I, I hope people are listening and realizing, yeah, I'm really, I'm really concerned. I'm very concerned about critical theory in the church, but you know, my job becomes that much harder when people are inoculated against criticism because all they ever hear is, oh, you're just calling me a Marxist. I'm like, I'm really not. I'm re- I really have concerns. Yeah. But again, it's just polarizing the conversation to the degree that people can't hear the real criticisms because they've been hit with, you know, 99 angry people yelling Marxists at them, that they, they sh- shut down. So I think if you want to make my, if you want to make my job easier, <laughs> just, just, just use the word critical theory and, and talk to people. Don't yell at them. Don't label them. Say, hey, why do you think that? Use Greg Kokel's you know, questions. What, what makes you think that? What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? You know, wh- why do you think that? Uh, and, then, and then and always turn back to scripture and say, well, wh- how are these ideas uh, good and true, and how are they maybe incompatible with scripture and, and false? So yeah, I think those are the big things. And just and read broadly, you know, get outside of your echo chamber. And it's for everybody today in today's culture, it's it's so polarized and such a you hear so many so few uh, so there's so little intellectual diversity and mm-hmm. ideological diversity. I think it's important if you know I um I read these days almost exclusively atheist. Works for atheists and critical theorists. Yeah. Uh, not because I mean, I just okay. I'll, I'll admit it. I'm politically, you know, pretty conservative, and I'm obviously a, I'm a little Christian. But I want to know the best arguments from people who don't think like me, and that'll make me think critically and, and say, hey, why do I believe this? Am I right? You know. So I think part of the poverty of our intellectual um, culture is that we only hear what we already believe. And so if you are conservative, you should be reading people that are not conservative uh, on, on, say, race or gender, anything, and hear what they have to say so that you can represent them fairly and understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Well, that is a lot to chew on. That is really good stuff, especially the echo chamber stuff. We we all, it's so easy to fall into an echo chamber without even realizing it, which is why I do try to read the primary sources and, and uh, check out people I disagree with online and, and see what they're actually saying. And I think that's really good advice for all of us. If you're listening and you want to learn more about this, go to uh, Neil's website, shenviapologetics.wordpress.com or follow him on Twitter near, at Neil Shenvi. Neil, thank you so much for uh, just this really fascinating discussion. I, I know it's just kind of scratching the surface, but hopefully people will begin to recognize uh, these ideas. And I'm sure for many people, they've already seen all of this and they just didn't have a name for it. And so I think that this has been really helpful to give it a name. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Elisa. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.